All right. So in addition to Converge, this network of churches that we're a part of, not only do we send out missionaries, but we also plant churches. That's a big part of the reason why we're in this network. And um, in our network, especially in the Rocky Mountain region, which is Colorado, Wyoming, I think up to Montana, parts of Nebraska, even New Mexico and Utah, that uh, we have an audacious goal of planting 100 churches in the next 10 years, which is pretty crazy because we only have about 60 churches in our network. So this is a huge goal that we're, we're aiming towards, and, and that means that we're raising up some church planters like Josh Allen. So could you guys give a warm round of applause for Josh Allen? Now, Josh, in addition to being in our network, is a friend of mine. He and I went to seminary together, Denver Seminary, and we got to know each other some there. And then we reconnected this last fall as I learned that Josh is planting a church in Colorado Springs. It's my hometown. I said, hey, we got to get you up here some one of these days. So I'm really glad that you can be here today. He's going to share the message, and he's going to talk a little bit about his church plant. And afterwards, you can go to the table in the back. His wife, Kelly, is here in the front. Um, and they are doing an incredible job as they're planting their churches. They're getting it kicked off. Um, but he has a tough job as a church planter, and it's just getting the ball rolling, and it's really cool. So I'm going to turn it over to Josh now, and he has a great message of hope for us. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, friends. Thank you for having us. Like Matt said, my name is Josh Allen, and I'm the pastor of Hope Colorado Springs. We're a small community of Christ followers and truth seekers in the Northeast Colorado Springs neighborhoods. And my wife, Kelly, is with me this morning. She truly is my partner in ministry. She's my partner in ministry during the four years we were student pastors uh, together. And she's been that in the church planning process as as well. Actually, Kelly was the one who, before me, said, Hey, this uh, thing, this church planning idea, I think it's what God wants us to do. And uh, I was like, No, no, that's that's a big, hairy monster. I don't want any piece of that wrestling that bear. Um, let's look at other options, and then slowly but surely, using her voice and the voices of others, like those in the Converge Network, said, yes, this is what I'm calling you to do, uh, plant this new congregation in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs uh, is a community that does need hope, uh, and it needs churches that are uh, drawing people to the hope that only Jesus can give. It leads the El Paso County area, where Colorado Springs is located, is second in the nation in teenage suicide rate, um, has a huge number of military families, many of whom are struggling through PTSD and the addictions that go along with that. Um, and so there's this idea that like, oh, it's Colorado Springs, there's a bunch of Christians living down there, we don't need new churches down there. False. We have a cul-de-sac of eight houses, and out of those eight houses, only two are affiliated uh, officially with following Jesus or any kind of religion, and the other one doesn't really have any relationship with any of our neighbors. Uh, so it's us, and then it's a bunch of neighbors who we're trying to reach with that hope. And uh, I really respect uh, Stapleton's leadership. I've watched this now two services, and I was struck uh, by the message that Amanda wrote for Jimmy. And then I was struck also by watching Matt and Melissa lead worship up here together. And I feel blessed to have Kelly uh, serving by my side. But I think that's always awesome when you see a couple using their gifts together, saying, hey, we're going to love the people of this church family well. And so I'd ask that you would be praying for and supporting and encouraging them, realizing that as they spend so many of their weeks and days trying to transfer hope to you and point you to the hope that Jesus can give every once in a while. In fact, usually weekly, they need somebody to lead them to that hope as well and encourage them. 
So, speaking of uh, families and doing ministry together, like I said, my wife Kelly's here. Our little boy Josiah was sitting up front uh, last service, but he decided playing with uh, friends, new friends in the children area would be cooler this time. So, he's five, and then Gabe is two and a half, and he's running the roost back there in the two-year-old classroom, I'm sure, uh, as we speak. But life, we have any parents in here? Anyone? Yeah. And grown kids count. You're like, well, I'm not a parent anymore. They're 20. No, they're still your kids. And 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 even as they get older, I'm sure, though I have not walked it yet, the struggles that you go on, the adventure that you're on with them just changes uh, in, in terms of what it looks like, right? So the adventure of raising children, it's always a wonderful adventure, but it rarely looks like how we expect. And speaking of unexpected seasons in life, what season in life are you in? As you join us this morning. Why was it? Somebody said joy. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Maybe it's not joy. Maybe the first thing that came to your mind, though, was something else. What drew you to come to Stapleton Church this morning? See, at Hope Colorado Springs, we believe that whenever we in the modern day go to church, it's not because we have to anymore. It's not because we owe somebody anything. We choose to go because of three driving felt needs. First, we're looking for a place to belong. We're looking for a family. We're looking for a community. Second, we're looking for some semblance of meaning or why we are here, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We're looking for purpose. And third, we're looking for that group of people who is going to value us for who we are and not just what we can do or provide. We're looking for real love. And all those three things, they combine together, and I think they point us to this one unifying word that's at at the heart of each of those. And that is, we are looking for real, lasting, thriving hope. Hope. Matt, uh, I I watched his uh, sermons from the past couple weeks, so uh, I'm aware that you guys have been in this series talking about what a healthy church looks like. And I told first service, I'm going to jump right in on that uh, message series. And I'm going to suggest, and I think Matt would agree with me, that part of what a healthy church does is draw the communities, the neighbors surrounding it, towards the hope that only Jesus can provide. That's our job as Christ followers. The mission of the church for the past 2,000 years, now big church, big C, sorry, from your perspective, big C, not little C, has been to make the hope that we have found in Jesus real for our neighbors and for one another. Many of whom aren't Christ followers. They're just truth seekers looking for something to build their life upon. And that same mission of making hope real is what we've made the mission of Hope Colorado Springs. So friends, why did you join us this morning? What are you looking for? What is it that God used to draw you to come and join these people, these faces, again on a Sunday morning in Hanger 61. So all of us are searching. In my, in my heart, I believe that part of that answer for you, and I know it's the answer for me, the reason I show up is because I am looking for that hope to help guide me through the week ahead. And maybe that's the same for you. So the sad thing is, you know, despite this video, I love this video, you hear that epic music and 
converge Rocky Mountain that's talking about planting churches and you're seeing all like the dirt biking and like Bronco country and everything and you're ready to go take the next mountain for Jesus, right? Yeah, let's plant 10 churches in the next year. Let's do it. And we as Hope Colorado Springs want to be a part of that movement. Our vision isn't to grow to a certain number in several years. We're going to say, hey, we succeeded. If it's been three to four years, we have also joined in on that movement and planted a church from within us. And so Stapleton's involved in that. Churches throughout Denver and the Front Range are involved in that. And that video gets you going like, yes, the church is awesome. The church is the best thing ever. It's the best force for good there is. And yet, in our search for hope, we have often found a road filled with apathy, disillusionment, and hurt along that journey. Sometimes we come and we find a place where we feel like, yes, we can find that community and that support structure, and, and I think this is where you know God wants me to build my life upon, and then we watch as relationships fall apart, and that support structure isn't as reliable as we thought, and we are left alone, despondent, and feeling hopeless, looking at the shadows of the life around us. That is where a young woman found herself 2,000 years ago in a garden on the first Easter Sunday. Her name was Mary Magdalene. Mary had left so much to follow Jesus. She had risked so much in her social circles as a woman uh, following this teacher and, and, and trusting that his message of hope, of life eternal, would raise her status and the poorest around them to this new state status as children of God members of the kingdom of God, that he would be their savior. And now she and the rest of Jesus' followers on the first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago found themselves with absolutely nothing left to put their hope in because they had just watched two days before as Jesus died of a horrific, humiliating, and excruciating death on the cross. And they realized all too uh, firmly that if it could happen to him, it could happen to them. And he must have not been who he said he was. Because he's dead just like everybody else. And they're left with very little. And Mary reasons to herself that despite all she feels like she's lost, at least she could go and give Jesus a proper burial. Say some, some actual appropriate goodbyes in the Jewish manner on Sunday morning. And yet we'll find that even this faint hope, this little bit of solace, would be crushed. Join with me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This uh, book of the Bible was written by one of Jesus' followers. We're going to say a little bit more about him in a minute, but his name was John. He was the youngest of Jesus' followers. And so in John chapter 20, he's talking about what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. Let's uh, read in verses 1 through 2. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So put yourself in Mary's shoes. Here's a little bit of the backstory. The reason it's Sunday morning is that the Jews, by religious law, were not allowed to do any form of work on Saturday. So Jesus was executed on Friday, and they were allowed the exception that rather than, you know, the Romans usually left their victims on the cross uh, till Sunday. Why? To make an example out of them. They leave usually the naked bodies hung up on the cross so that the sun 
and the elements and the birds could have their way with them. And then they would let the Jews come and take them down on Sunday because they knew that they had to wait through the Sabbath. So Jesus' followers were left waiting for two days. And Mary shows up at the tomb early and says, crack of dawn Sunday morning so that she would be able, you know, the guards that the Romans posted at the tomb to make sure that nobody stole the body would help her roll it away. And she would be able to uh, dress the body and make it uh, right for burial in the traditional Jewish ways. And yet she gets there and finds that the tomb has already been removed. Can you imagine how despondent she must be in this moment? This was her last, think of the relationships, the hopes that have been crushed in your life where you have that one final sliver that something might turn around or that you might be able to have some kind of closure or peace with the situation. She shows up there and the tomb, this giant stone that even the strongest he-men of us could not roll out of the way, is rolled away and she looks inside and Jesus' body is gone. Now, there was lots of people who might have been willing to steal Jesus' body. Now, the Roman government and the Jewish leaders were afraid that Jesus' followers would do it. Because, of course, if they, uh, you know, take the body and go out and say, Hey, uh, Jesus is raised from the dead. Look, the body's gone. Then everybody's going to be like, Oh, the Jesus guy, he really was the Messiah. So it was possible that the Romans or the Jews, Jewish leaders themselves removed the body so that they could beat, beat the disciples. And then they could post guards at the entrance and say, look, it's sealed. No, you know, nobody's gotten in there. Somebody else might have stolen the body and gotten in there so that they could pursue their own fame and fortune. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, parade Jesus around like some kind of circus. Here's that, that, that wizard, that miracle worker. Here he is. Look at his body. Mary is left with nothing else to do but to run back to the guys. To Jesus' 12 and say, listen, it's gotten worse. Not only is he dead, not only did we watch that horrific thing happen, but his body's gone now. They've humiliated him, even in his grave. Let's see what happens next as she goes and shares this news with Peter and John. So Peter and the other disciples started to throw the tomb. Now both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was, cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple also went inside. He saw and he believed, because they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So here's a little bit of background here. Peter is this guy. He's the leader of Jesus' followers. And he's known to you know, rush into any situation and also stick his foot in his mouth at any given opportunity. But he's an older man. And this guy that keeps getting referred to as the other disciple or the one who Jesus loved, that's John, the guy who wrote this book's way of being modest. He doesn't want to say like, and me, the favorite, ran to the tomb and, <clears throat> by the way, I was the first to believe. He doesn't want to say that, so he keeps referring to himself. Anytime you see in the book of John this weird phrase of the other disciple or the one you love, that's just John referring to himself. And so he's a younger man. Actually, he's probably maybe half the age of Peter. And he, he hightails it and sprints to the tomb. And he gets in there, but being rather cautious and the youngest, he just peeks in. But Jesus being bombastic, you know, a fisherman, a burly fellow, you know, he runs, he goes, <laughs> he just runs full speed into the tomb. Like, where's the body? 
And here's what's really interesting about this passage, friends, is that for months Jesus has been leading them to Jerusalem, saying, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm not going to be just a conquering king. I'm not going to be this warrior like the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, think I am. I'm also going to be the Messiah of Isaiah 53 that talks about a suffering servant, one who will sacrifice his life for many. I'm going to die this horrific and humiliating death. You're going to see it, but don't worry. After three days, I will rise again. And just like some of the crazy stuff Jesus said, like, hey, I want you to drink my blood and eat my flesh and other things, the disciples would hear Jesus say these things and he wouldn't always understand them. And they just kind of go, huh? Huh? We know you say some good stuff too. We still think you're Messiah. And they go with him until the day of his execution. And then sadly, despite all this preparation, the only people at the foot of the cross, his only followers that showed up for that most humiliating moment were John, the youngest, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' mother, and some other women. Men, out of the twelve men who were closest to him, only one showed up. Peter, his leader, the, you know, the one who's willing to fight any fight and take out the hill, even denies Jesus three times the day before his execution, and the night before his execution. Three times his courage wanes. And yet they see the empty tomb, and it says that in that moment, finally, all of Jesus' teaching and words strike clear in their heart, and John, he can say this because he wrote the book, says, and that's the first moment I truly believed Jesus was alive, and that hope sprung up in their soul. Just as clear as the morning star signals the new dawn. And they run out of the tomb. And poor Mary has gone along with them to the tomb again. And they just, they don't check on Mary. They just run out and they go tell the fellows, He's alive! He's alive! Listen! But where does that leave Mary? Crying. Crushed. Broken. Outside the tomb. Thinking everything she had put her hope in. Let's see what happens next. Because friends, as we're about to discover, that would not be where Jesus wanted to leave her that morning, and it's not where Jesus wants to leave you today. Let's see what happens. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she went, she bent over into the tomb to look, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Now at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was him. Eyes are all misty with tears, you know. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? He wants her to realize. Thinking he's the gardener, shabby-looking fellow, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him. I'll go get him. And all Jesus says to her is, Mary. Just Mary. That's all he had to say. The text says that he whispers her name. And in that very moment, she realizes the truth of who he is. And more than that, she realizes that all the hope she thinks she's lost isn't gone after all. That Jesus was who he said he was, that he was her Messiah, that he did conquer the grave, that he showed up. He stepped up to the plate and he overcame the fight. 
And I think Mary that morning, friends, learned a lesson that God wants to teach to us today. She learned the truth that would help preserve hope through the rest of her existence. And I think that truth is this. Jesus always rises. And with him, so does real hope. He always rises. There is no fight that Jesus will not take on head on. There is no temporary setback, temporary loss that he cannot overcome. Even death, which is the final part of the story for each of us, if we live without him, there is nothing so big, impossible, hurtful, painful, difficult for Jesus not to overcome. That's wonderful news. It's amazing. It should change everything about how we see the world. You know those moments in movies? You know, we love movies because there's tension in them, right? If, you know, it was always the Truman Show. Anybody seen that movie? It's a little bit old now, so forgive me if you haven't. But there's this movie about this guy who has this perfect life, and there's no plot points in the movie, in the show. He just, like, lives a perfect life every day, and everybody thinks it's awesome to watch him live this perfect life, except in his heart, he knows this isn't what it's really about. We like movies that have plot points where our hero or hero or heroine has to overcome impossible odds because we want to see hope restored when it seems like everything else is lost. And you know, this moment in the Bible I think is one of the clearest examples of that that God gives us. It reminds me of a quote for any Star Wars fans in here. Yeah, a few, few that will own it, others that like it in secret. That's okay. Um, so, you know, the Star Wars fans in here, you'll remember from the most recent full episode, not Solo, the full episode, the, the Last Jedi, there's a moment where the new good guys calling themselves the Resistance are opposing this new bad guy group called the First Order. And the First Order's got them on the ropes. The good guys are down to their last, like, space battleship, you know, cruiser, or whatever you call it. And one of their fearless leaders who's the guy who's usually plunging full speed into every fight, finally looks and goes, what hope do we have? Asks one of the commanders. Both of them had been mentored by Leia, the you know Princess Leia, the ones with cinnamon bumps on her head, on both sides of her head. And so they had been mentored by her, and they reflect back together, what would Leia say in this, in, in this situation? And the one commander says, this is what she always told me, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you see it, You'll never have strength to make it to the morning. You'll never see the dawn. You know, guys, that's not just a great movie quote. Leia's words in that movie echo with God's word, eternal. When he, in in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, tells us that hope is the hope we have in Jesus is like an anchor for our souls. The book of 1 Peter says that God has raised us through Jesus to a living hope. A living hope. Something that dwells inside of us and thrives. You know the kind of people who don't need that hope? People don't need that kind of hope when their lives are already peaceful and easy. When they're, you know, floating at anchor somewhere in some quiet bay away from the storms of life. People don't need that hope when they've already lived life to the fullest They have everything they want. They don't need to be resurrected to a living hope. The people who need that kind of hope are those of us who are willing to recognize and admit that none of the other things that we could possibly build our life upon will last. All those things, wealth, fame, fortune, power, privilege, relationships, networking, all of that will fail us. 
That's why we need an anchor. That's why we need the living hope. Sometimes, though, we hear that and we go, well, I don't want that life. I don't want a life of risk. I don't want a life depending on Jesus to give me hope day by day. I want an easy life. I want to live my 70, 80 years on this this earth in relative peace and security and safety with nothing bad happening. I want my 2.3 children and my 1.5 dogs and one cat. And I want to live this nice old life, make lots of money, retire when I'm 65 or 70, travel the rest of my days doing whatever I want. And then, on top of it, I want to know that my eternity is secure. You know who doesn't want that for us? Jesus. Why? Because the minute we believe that all of our wealth and all of our power and fame and fortune and privilege and other things can provide for ourselves, can give us hope to build our lives upon, we don't need Him any longer. And all of us friends desperately need Him. If you doubt this, look at the lives of some of the rich and the famous throughout the history of our world. Recently, it's sad, and I don't mean to generalize about this, but I speak to the issue of suicide because, as I'm about to share with you, it touches my own life in a very personal and important, deep way. We've watched in the last year as rock stars such as Chester Pennington and Chris Cornell, as fashion designer Kate Spade, and as celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain have chosen a different outlet for their life, a different ending, based on whatever... You know, secret demons and issues and hurts they were facing. And I'm in no place to judge, friends. I understand that pain. But the saddest part about it is that despite their wealth, their fame, their fortune, there was something about all of those things that they learned like King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament that all of those things were meaningless. And it wasn't enough to restore hope, to help them make it another day. Have you ever been in that place? Perhaps that is how you joined us this morning. I've been there. As a middle schooler, I was coming um, out of years of responding, reflecting, trying to navigate life after my parents' rather difficult divorce. By the time I was in middle school, I was contemplating suicide in a manner of ways that no 12-year-old should ever think of. By the time I had gotten to high school, moved back down to Florida to live with my dad as a 14-year-old, I had contemplated suicide on a regular basis. It was just a part of my life. But then, Jesus saved me. How did he do it? He showed up in the faces of a little church family in Orlando, Florida area, who loved me, welcomed me into their midst. They became my mothers and fathers, grandmas and grandpas, brothers and sisters in the faith. And they showed me what a life built on the hope of Jesus could look like. What real family could look like. What unconditional love could look like. What purpose and direction for the rest of my my existence could look like. Prior to finding that and choosing to follow Jesus there, I often imagined my life like, you know, I was sitting up on some beach shore there on, on the Florida coastline. And it was a dark day and there was this tsunami, this giant black wave representing all the stress and all the family hurt and all the disappointments and all the things that I was trying to wrestle with on my own in my life crashing down on me. And I would turn to face this wave and I would imagine myself like, you know, hulking out. You ever thought of this? Dudes, I think maybe we're prone to think this way. You know, we worship superheroes and stuff. But there's this moment you like see the wave coming and like in your mind you're like, all right, 
going to do now? Like, I'm going to sit in ducks. Well, I know what I'm going to do. And you just imagine just driving your legs into the sand, you know, bowing out your chest and, and lowering your shoulder, just allowing that wave to crash against you and smash itself like you're some kind of invincible and immovable rock. How, how badly I want to be that strong in and of it myself. But here's the truth. Here's the truth, friends. And men, we have to admit this too. None of that, us are strong enough to face the storms and tidal waves of life on our own. You know it, and I know it. On my own, I'm going to get wiped out. On my own, I'm going to get blown away. It's impossible, and I don't even stand a chance. But in those years, through those dear people at that little church that first introduced me to the hope of Jesus, I learned an amazing and life-changing truth, a freeing truth, friends, and it's this. Jesus never expected us to face those storms and tidal waves on our own. The reality is you need to change your perspective on what the scenario is. And I have to change this perspective day by day. The reality is, is that Jesus is standing there on that shoreline in front of you, strong and firm and victorious, having defeated death and anything else this world could throw at him. He's standing there like a pillar of adamant, just waiting for you to realize that all you have to do is just go and grab him. And the Bible says that in that moment, when you say, yes, Jesus, you're calling me, I will grab hold. That he will grab hold of you, and he will never let go. You want to know what's really awesome about that? What's the most amazing part of that whole thing? Sorry. The most amazing part of that whole thing is the fact that what is so difficult for us, the impossible situation for us, isn't even that hard. A tidal wave never stood a chance when it came against the king of the universe, the living and resurrected hope. Now, where does that leave us today? You have a choice, and I have a choice. The fact of the matter is, we can each choose to ignore that opportunity. We can each choose to ignore Jesus whispering to our heart, just like he whispered to Mary 2,000 years ago, and calling us to put all of our trust and hope in Him and in nothing else, nothing else that could fail us. We can choose to do that or we can choose to say, and we do this and I do it, I'm an American. We have wealth, we have education, we have mobility, we have rights, we can figure it out and we can take on whatever the world throws our way on our own. own. Maybe it's you as a couple and you and us together, we'll get through it. Why? Because we just have so much inner strength to face the struggles on our own. That wave doesn't stand a chance in the face of us. And see, what will will happen is we'll continue to rely on those finances, on those relationships, on those friends. We'll trade in an easy life for the best life. We'll trade in a life of ease for a life of adventure. And yes, the life of adventure, it comes with risks, friends. It inherently comes with risks and hurt and loss and sadness. But would you be willing to embrace those things in order to be used by God to make hope real? The hope that can only be found in Jesus real for your neighbors, for your friends, for your co-workers, for your family members. Because that's really what's at risk. The world doesn't need 
you know, superficial Christianity where we go, hey, I believe in God, but I try and take care of all my needs on my own. It needs to see real, risky uh, Christianity that bases its whole hope on Jesus. That's what it needs to be introduced to. And that's what's hanging in the balance. That's the decision point in front of you and I right now. That morning, Mary, the disciples, heard Jesus' whisper in their heart. And it was at once a simple, quiet whisper, soft as a breeze. And yet, on the other hand, it was as powerful as a hurricane, calling her to believe in the hope that will never die. I believe this morning, friends, that God is calling you as well to take that risky and active approach to faith. When it says following Jesus, are you willing to follow him into the darkness? Not because you're strong enough, not because you're bold enough, but because he's boldly going where you weren't willing to go. I want to share some things with you transparently. We as church planters, it isn't an easy road. No pastoral ministry is an easy road necessarily. And there are things that my wife and I are staring down together as a couple uh, right now as God is bringing people to Hope Colorado Springs and he's bringing non-believers who are willing to host Bible studies in their homes, people willing to serve and we're thinking that well, we need to build teams for different areas. We want our children to be disciples. We need a children's ministry for that. We want to serve our community together at least once a month. We need people to help us organize that because we can't all do it. The church has never been about one or two people. It's about a family working together to make hope real for those around them. We're looking at those needs for people, and then we're looking at some of the financial realities. And because Converge Rocky Mountain loves us, before they will allow you to plant a church, they say, hey, I need you to put together a budget because we want you to eat. We want you to eat. We want you to have a plan. And so then you as a family start going, okay, here, here, what are our modest, the realistic needs? You know, what can we do with what we... And you start seeing the numbers go into the thousands and the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, and you realize, man... These things, they take a lot to make happen. Churches take a lot to make happen. Where are we going to get that money? Where are we going to get the people? I know. I have an idea. Why don't we just hulk out? Let's try and attack it on our own. Us together, we can conquer any obstacle. We can do it. And the reality of the matter, friends, is if we try and approach planting a church, or if you try and approach any obstacle in your life that way, we're going to get wiped out. But see, it's Jesus' church. It's not our church, it's his church. It's not our victory, it's his victory. It's his glory. And the God of the universe, the one who can get out of a grave, he has all the resources necessary to provide for Stapleton, for a hundred churches in ten years. Any obstacle that we could temporarily think, like, that's impossible, it's easy for God. It's easy for not even that big of a deal. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But you know what that means? You know how he usually provides for those things? Through the church. Big C. Through people like you. Through our brothers and sisters in Colorado Springs. He says, I got you. I'm there to encourage you. And friends, I don't know what that looks like for you, but you have opportunities right around you today to make hope real for your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your family. But before you can do that, you need to believe with everything you are that that hope actually exists and is worth building your life. See, the reality is the Bible, when it records the story of Mary getting her name whispered in the garden, it's not really for them. It's for us. 
2,000 years later, and God's Spirit invites you to put your name where Mary's is. As he whispers, Joshua, Kelly, Melissa, Matt, Josiah, Daniel, Gabriel, Emily, Amanda. He whispers and he asks you to be a part of this adventure. This adventure that looks to him as your source of purpose, love, and community. As your source of hope. Because Jesus always rises. And with him, so does real hope. I'm going to pray as, as Matt and Melissa come and, and lead us in worship in a moment. But friends, my prayer for you today is that you would be filled with that strength that only Jesus could provide. That you would be free from that fight where you think that you have to take on the storms and waves of life on your own. <coughs> and that out of that, you would have that renewed and living hope bursting forth in your soul that can't help from spill over into everyone else around you. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we thank you for Stapleton Church. Thank you for the family that you're building in Hope, Colorado Springs. Thank you for Converge Rocky Mountain, their example and the conviction that you put on their hearts to be a part of planting a hundred churches in ten years. Lord, that's just not a, it's not just a number. Each of those churches uh, with a different name and a different group of people represent a place that you are trying to draw people towards the hope that only you can provide in a unique community with a unique set of needs. Thank you for this opportunity to join our brothers and sisters at Stapleton, Lord, and I ask that you free each of us from trying to fight fights on our own that we would look to you and that we would anchor ourselves towards you, our living and only real hope. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.